0: Esther, chapter six. Open your Bibles to the sixth chapter of Esther. We've continued our study of this remarkable book. This book named after a woman, along with the book of Ruth, proving once again that the Bible is inspired for no ancient books would have given such honor in their subject matter and in their title But the Bible and its treatment of women, beginning from the very first chapter with the inclusion of the words, and female. Male and female receive the image of God. The inclusion of those words again prove that this book is inspired by the Holy Spirit. No other book gives such honor. The book of Esther is remarkable. It is a beautiful piece of art. It is beyond Beethoven's Seventh Symphony or Mendelssohn's Italian Symphony. It is a work of art that repays the way looking at a painting can repay the viewer. There is a right way and a wrong way to look at paintings. You need to know how to read a painting in order to see everything that's in it. And then you need to give the time to it. This book is better than a painting or a sculpture or a symphony because it shows a combination, a collection of lines that could not be improved upon. And thus it shows itself to be inspired. If someone responds, well, that's your bias speaking. My answer would be, yes, you're right. It is my bias. I am biased toward the book because it is inspired. And secondly, I would say, millions and millions of people have found that it has the same kind of powerful, gripping, aesthetic power. Here in the sixth chapter, we come to the middle of the book, and in some ways, the hinge on which the whole book swings. We have been building now for five chapters. In chapters one and two, the solution begins before the problem when Esther is set up to be chosen. In chapter 3, we have perhaps the greatest evil perpetrated in the Old Testament. A man attempts to destroy an entire nation because someone does not honor him. And then a king gives into it and says, all right, let's do it. Let's kill all these honorable citizens. In chapter 4, we learn how to weep correctly And then we realize when life is in great danger, call a prayer meeting. We saw also that there are times when risk is right. Chapter 5, Esther took that risk. She went before the king. And we saw the first of three meetings with the king. Well, we can understand why she asks for the banquet. That's what she does in chapter 5. But why doesn't she tell her problem right away in chapter five? She doesn't. What happens to her? Is it fear? Is it nerves? It's an invisible hand guiding and moving so that chapter six can happen. Chapter six is a chapter that happens only because Esther asks for a second meeting. A second banquet with Haman and the king. She's met with the king once. Then she meets with the king for lunch that day. Then at lunch that day, she says, how about tomorrow you come back and let's have lunch again? What, bigger and better than today? Wait till you see my cinnamon rolls tomorrow. So the king agrees. Pleased with his beautiful wife and her wise presentation, he says, come back. Haman is thrilled. He runs home and talks all about himself in five categories. Never are men so logical as when they arrange all of their own praise. So Haman does this. His wife is a great fool. She leads him into calamity. A picture of a Jezebel. And she gives him this evil, despicable, cruel advice to build a gallows 25 meters high in the afternoon. Maybe just put a hook on the top to hang him. Maybe actually put a crossbar on the top, but do it quickly. Get on this. So that the whole town, even the whole city of the capital of Persian empire could see the death and the hanging body of the man who would not stand up or even move for you. That is the introduction to the sixth chapter. And I invite you tonight to follow along with a pen that will only write the letter P for the word providence. What we are going to see in this sixth chapter is another example of the proof of the inspiration of this book. Because if you were writing this book, you'd put a miracle in here. Somewhere in chapter four, five, or six, there'd be insert miracle. Fire from heaven. You'd say, have plagues again. It worked back in Exodus. It's been a thousand years. Let's try them again. Jonathan Edwards said in the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he has uncountable ways of taking evil men out of this world. If that is true that he has uncountable ways of taking evil men out of the world... Do you think he doesn't have uncountable ways of saving his people? Does he have a shortage when it comes of choices that he could make to bring about the salvation of his people or the glory and exaltation of his name? And here we see proof that it's written by God because we would have put in some kind of miracle. We'd we'd write verses 1 and 2 and say, oh, no one will believe that. Well, let's see what it is. And I invite you to put a P anywhere that you find the invisible hand. If you find some, some collection of events that you say that, that had to be divine. Look here in chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, could not the king sleep? On what night? Oh, that very night before the second banquet and the third meeting just that night he's a strong young man he's king of his empire he has many years in front of him <clears throat> why would he lose sleep now the king could not sleep and so the king commanded to bring the minstrels be- no I'm sorry and so the king commanded to bring food and what? Wine- pardon me So the king commanded to bring his wife. So the king commanded to bring a book. A, B, C, D, which one? A, D. He brings the Chronicles. Of all the book, why is the Chronicles? Why not Homer's Iliad? He had it. Why not the Odyssey? Why not the poets? Oh, oh, maybe this man's a philosopher. Why not the ancient philosophers? Why not bring Heraclitus? Oh, maybe he hates the Greeks. Maybe that's it. Well, if so, that's a remarkable turn of events as well. Why, when there's so many books he could bring, why not bring the Torah, which was in his kingdom? Haman tells us that in chapter 3. Why not bring the Psalms of David? Even if you're not a believer, people like the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Why not bring that? Why say, I know, um, the records of the town? Could anything be more boring? Well, that's what he needs. He needs something to put him to sleep. Okay, bring the Chronicles. Verse two. And it was found written that Mordecai had told. Oh, so he gets to the part about Mordecai. Why start there? You don't think the records of a capital city of an empire are pretty large? Why, why just, uh, which scroll? Can you imagine yourself being, being the scribe? Got to get a scroll here. What scroll? What scroll? And there's all the scrolls lined up in their, in their collections. He says, ah, I just got to grab one. Get one quick. Ah, I don't know. I can't just I'm never good at this. Eeny, meeny, might grab that one. Why did he grab that one? And then you open this girl. Why put your finger on the story of Mordecai? Now, if this happens once, you say, That's amazing. But this is now the fourth item in our list. And we're only just beginning. It was found that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh to the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door who sought to lay a hand on the king Hazuarus. How did Mordecai find out? How? How did God work it out so that Mordecai finds out the one man who's honest and just, the one man who must be exalted, the one man who's later in the future going to be in danger? All of those factors, and it's just Mordecai, and that's the story they happen to turn to. Verse three, and the king said, what honor and dignity has been done to Mordecai for this? How in the world did he not get honored? Is this the way things work in the courts of the world? That someone saves the life of the emperor and the guy says, ah, forget that one. What will happen to your subjects if you don't honor them when they save your life? Politicians were very, were holding very unstable offices all through world history, but especially in the Middle East at this time. If you'll read the histories, you'll see many times they're living and dying quickly. Kings of Israel and Judah, some two months, some a week. You don't keep your office only by stabbing people in the back. You're going to have to make sure anyone who helps you, 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 you make sure you, you help the people who help you. This one's not helped completely forgotten though. He sits at your gate. How did that happen? If he hadn't been forgotten, the whole thing falls apart. How is it that he was forgotten? How is it that the king thinks? Whoa! whoa, whoa. How is it that the king paused to ask, what gift did this guy get? Did he get the coffee machine? No, he didn't. What, what did he get here? This guy. Did he get anything? He didn't get a new phone? Nothing? How is it that the king thought to ask? Keep going. Keep going. Then the king's servants said, nothing has been done for him. How did those servants know? Was it marked? Was it marked? Mental note in record, not paid. Balance outstanding. Verse four. And the king said, who is in the court? Why in the world would the king ask, here you are, probably early in the morning now, exhausted, ah, uh, hey, Hey, is there someone in the court down there? It's a big house. Hey, hey, run out there. See if someone's just standing down there. Uh, sir, they're not, they're not allowed in the court. I'll go check anyway. I thought I'd heard, Dawin. Run, go see if there's a guy down there. Why did he ask that question? Why is Haman in the court? Look at verse 4. Now Haman was coming to the outward court of the king's house to speak to the king. To hang Mordecai. Why was Haman rushing in there? Because his wife said, I got a great idea. You still got three hours before it's dark. Why don't you you even put a 25 meter pole up in the middle of your beautifully terraced grass? That sounds like a great afternoon activity. Let's real quick put up a 25 meter pole. And then, you know, I can't even sleep. I'm so giddy with excitement about seeing my enemy swing from the 25 meter pole over my garden with the flowers. So let me rush into the court and see if I can meet the king when he's up. How in the world did Haman think of that? He already knew he was going to see the king that day. Why rush first of all the courtiers? Why did the king find him? Verse five, the king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman stands in the court. The king said, let him come in. Haman came in. The king said to him, what shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Why didn't he say Mordecai? What made the king say random rhetorical question for a Tuesday morning? What do you think should happen to guys that I really like? Why did the king phrase the question that way? Next line. Now, Haman thought in his heart. Why did Haman think this thought at this time? You say, ah, I got an explanation for that one. Bad people think that way. Isn't that part of the beauty of the poetry? The story is constructed so that men acting like men could and would and might and should act under normal circumstances. It's all working out. You can imagine every one of these things happening. But at the same time, you say, that cannot be a coincidence. I cannot imagine it happening just like this. I can't do it. Now, i thought in his heart. To me, the king delight to do honor more than to myself. Haman falls into the old error of believing other men are as bad as he is in their judgment, in their virtue, in their morality. At the end of verse six, there are no more sins recorded in the book with the possible exception of verse 12. Sins stop right there. The second half of the book has no more sins in it. At least none that I could find. If you find one, tell me. This is a collection, a string of events that is orchestrated by God. But it's not done yet. Verse 7, Haman answered the king. For the man whom the king delights to honor. In Hebrew it reads, for the man in whose delight, for the man in whose honor the king finds delight. And then he lists a string of things. You can count these out and list them. There are at least six of them. Number one, let the royal clothing, the royal robes be brought, which the king usually wears. Make sure it's the the princely robes, royal robes. Number two, bring the horse that the king rides on. Number three, the crown royal set on his head. Let this apparel and this horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes. Number four, get good men to be his servants. Put all men under him. (coughs) So that they may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Number five, bring him, lead him on horseback through the street of the city. He's not done yet. Don't forget, there's six of them. And then what's the final item? Call out in front of this man, make that prince, make the highest you've got, act like he is the slave to that man. And make this high prince who's been reduced to a mere slave in the eyes of this great one. Make him call out, this is what will happen to honor the king's chosen one. Verse 10. Can you imagine Haman making a list of six items in any other way? Is there any other set of circumstances where those six items would come out? If the king said, Haman, what should I do for you? Would he list all six? Haman was free to say blessing after blessing, benefit after benefit, honor after honor, because the king never said, Haman, what should I do for you? If, if the king said, what should I do for you? Haman might have been afraid to grasp after too much. You'll remember earlier, he even said, I'm just going to kill these people and, then, and, and I'll pay for it. And then the king says, well, you can take their stuff. Haman's okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Haman's, Haman's careful not to ask for too much. To make it look, he doesn't want to lose his position by grasping out after too many things. Haman only lists those items because the name wasn't listed in the original question. What should happen to the man in whom the king delights to honor? So all six benefits are there. And there are gospel parallels to each one. But that's for another night. In verse 10, then the king said to Haman, Make haste, take the apparel on the horse as you have said, and do even to Mordecai the Jew. Interesting that he has to add the word Jew. It's almost as if he says, Mordecai the godly, Mordecai the child of Abraham, Mordecai the believer, Mordecai the one who follows Jehovah. This whole story is so full to a believer. He needs no explicit mention. Just like the most beautiful poetry can speak of the wonder of the love between a husband and wife, but do it in such metaphors and do it in such terms that it might not even use the word love. It might not even mention the name of the one who is loved. But yet the, the, the happy couple finds such happiness in the beautiful expressions that are therein. The Septuagint translation <laughs> is when the Greek believers before Jesus tried to translate the Hebrew Bible. The Old Testament is is written in what language? Hebrew. 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 What if you're in the Greek empire and you want to read the Bible? You might want a translation. When they translated the Bible from Hebrew into Greek, that translation is called what? Sept. Septuagint, from the word septa, 70. Septuagint. 70 people or so were involved in the translation. The Septuagint made the translation and it's called the LXX. L for 50, X for 10, X for 10. 50, 10, and 10. Septuagint is the name for the Old Testament translation. And guess what the Septuagint does here? They actually insert the name Jehovah. It's as if someone translating this is reached to a peak. It's as if they're gripped reading and say, "Say his name! Say his name!" No septuagint. We don't need to say his name because every believer knows the name is in there. Everyone who reads this with the fear of God in their soul says, "This is the one I serve." He's not merely the God of power and the God of might. He's the God of beauty. He is not merely one who comes in and conquers enemy with a strong arm knocking down the opponents. He is the poet. He is the composer. He is the scent and the perfume. He is everything beautiful and wonderful. And we must not forget that he is a warrior. He's also an artist. Septuagint got it wrong by inserting Jehovah. Although I can understand them doing it. I've thought that myself, even when writing these sermons. Every time I write my thesis statement, I try to keep it under 20 words. My goal is about 10 words, 12 words. Every time I write it, I want to insert the name God. Then I try to to rewrite it to take it out. I'm preaching on Esther. But I want to make sure that I do honor to the invisible hand the way the author did. But we're not done. Verse 11 Then Haman took. I'm sorry, back in verse 10. Do even so to Mordecai the Jew that sits at the king's gate, let nothing fail of all that you have spoken. Verse 11. Then Haman took the the apparel and the horse, dressed Mordecai. Who's the subject of that verb dress? It's Haman. Haman had to dress Mordecai. The enemy's not only beaten, he's humiliated. It's not enough to win. You've got to run the score. You've got to dominate and crush the opposition. Haman dresses Mordecai, brings him on horseback through the street of the city and proclaims before him, thus shall it be done. To the man whom the king delights to honor. You don't sound happy, Haman. (laughs) Verse 12. Mordecai came again to the king's gate. Back to work. Another day at the office. It's afternoon. That was an unusual morning. Let's get back to work. Haman rushed to his house. Morning. With his head covered. Verse 13, Haman told Zeresh's wife and all his friends everything that had befallen him. Then his, wi- his wise men and Zeresh's wife said to him, you know what we told you yesterday? Ah, uh, forget it all, you're done. If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews before whom you have begun to fall, you will not Prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Take note, young people, the people who counsel you to do evil will change in a moment. (coughs) It's not even 24 hours and they've changed. Kill him, kill him! Oh, no, 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 you're gonna die. Do not follow a multitude to do evil, Deuteronomy says. And one of the reasons you must not is the, the way they turn on other people is the way they will turn on you. When you follow a sinner, just remember, if he's okay, if he is content to lift up his hand against the holy, true, beautiful, and just one, he'll, he'll turn his hand against you too. You're not quite that good. Verse 14, while they were yet talking with Haman, the king's eunuchs came and quickly moved Haman to the banquet that Esther had prepared. What happens here? Haman is brought to the beginning of his end. Haman is humbled, but not yet humbled. He is brought low, but not yet put in the grave. He begins to fall, but he's not yet trampled on. He brings out his own thoughts and ideas, and they're twisted and thrown back on him. And now with that said, let's get into the message this evening, which is this sinners find themselves pushed towards humility, carried along towards humility. That is the point of this chapter, that sinners are moved along like a river towards humility. They cannot get out. They can't overcome the current. All of their swimming, all of their boating, all of their pulling, all of their prodding, climbing out on the bank, that only gets them set to slip even worse into a harder, faster portion. I want you to notice several things. Back in verse one, notice that sinners are humbled. Look at verse one. By the movement of other sinners. Verse one, it's the king. The king can't sleep. And it's the king's insomnia that will bring Haman to his end. <clears throat> it is the Lord who removed the sleep from him. The Hebrew says sleep ran away from the king. Beautiful. Why don't our translation say that? Sleep ran away from the king. It couldn't come to him. There is one king who does not sleep. All other kings try to sleep and when they can't it's a disaster. One king Never sleeps, and it's his glory. But this, this sinner is moving Haman to his humiliation. What would Haman say if he could know that's what's happening? No, 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 no. Go to sleep. Don't bring the chronicles. Bring bring the poets. Bring the prophets. Bring someone. Anything to him. Let me come and sing to the king. I got a good voice. Sinners are humbled even by the movement of other sinners. Again, sinners must be humbled, it's inevitable. Step by step, you say, how could this happen? There is no explanation for that string of events that I just listed. One after another, compounding, and every time you add another factor into an equation, you exponentially multiply the improbability. It could not have happened this way, but it did. It's inevitable. It's moving over and over. If you are a sinner, know this. You are being pulled. You will be pulled. You must be pulled down the river, over the waterfall, until you are low before God. It will happen. Because Philippians 2 verse 10 says, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It must happen. And it will happen. Number three, verse six. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what must be done? It's unexpected. Sinners don't expect it to be humbled. Haman thinks it's me. It's me. He's not doubting himself. As G.K. Chesterton said, men were meant to be doubtful about themselves and confident in the truth. We've switched the two. We're confident in ourselves And doubtful about the truth. The Bible says clearly there's one way to the Father. It's through the Son. Well, I'm not sure about that. Doubting the truth. Well, don't you think you were a little hard to those people you were just talking to? No, me? No, no, that guy was wrong. Confident in yourself. Doubtful about the truth. It should be the other way. Haman is very confident. (laughs) Why wouldn't the king like me? I mean, everyone likes me. The queen likes me. What a fool. He's wrong on every account. It's entirely unexpected because sinners are great fools. Sinners are men who think, give me a short-term pleasure before an omnipotent judge whose eyes go to and fro in the, ro- to and fro in the earth, watching all the evil and the good, who knows my down-sitting and my uprising, He understands my thought afar off, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. I don't even know myself, but this one does. And here's a sinner saying, you know what? I think I can do this thing that he says I can't do. And I think I'll take pleasure for five or 10 or 15 minutes or a day or a month. This brief period of time. And I'm sure that all the things he said and all the promises and all the hundreds and thousands of times he's done it in the past. And the fear of death that is in my own heart. All of that will come to nothing, and I'll be okay at the end. There can be no fool greater than that fool. Sinners don't expect to be humble. Number four, look at verse 10. Oh, I'm sorry, before you look at verse 10, look back at verse six. What should be done to the man in whom the king delights to honor? The father honors his son, and the son honors his people. All good kings honor those who are godly. All good good kings honor those who are underneath them. But pride overcomes restraint. Haman's pride is so strong that it overcomes his restraint. So rather than asking himself, am I an honorable man, a praiseworthy man? Am I a man deserving of these kind of things? He neglects all those. Look at verse 10, number four. Sinners are humbled by the exaltation of the righteous. Verse 10. Haman speaks three times in this book. Chapter three, chapter five, chapter six. About two verses each time. That's all we need to hear from this guy. We don't need very many of his words. Chapter three, we find out how evil he is. Chapter 5, we find him again ingratiating himself. In chapter 6, we find him serving himself, exalting himself, laying plans for himself to be honored. Sinners are humbled proportionally in proportion to the exaltation of the righteous. How long does heaven last without end? The eternity of hell will last the same way. The exact same Greek words are used to describe the lake of fire that describe heaven. For those sorry exegetes and weak men who give in to the spirit of the age, pretending themselves to be Christian and compassionate, are really gutless and weak when they will not tell you what the word actually says. They want to tell you that the horror of hell is short-term, it's not literal fire, that eventually all men will be removed from it. And yet, in this regard, Scripture says, heaven lasts age into age, the Greek expression for eternity. The same expression is used for the lake of fire. Sinners must be punished to the same degree that the godly are exalted. We see that here. Haman thought to exalt himself, and yet Mordecai is given that exaltation that Haman had strived for. Number five, perhaps the most important here, sinners are humbled before the final humbling. Verses 13 and 14. Haman goes home to his wife. (coughs) He tells his wife, look what happened to me. I've been embarrassed publicly. And she tells him up front, oh, this is very bad. Your end is coming. What does this mean? It means Haman had time to repent. I find in this chapter The love of God. You say love of God in a beautiful and humorous story. God throws Haman on the ground before killing him. How could there be love in that? Because remember, he first threw him on the ground before in the grave. Haman's not in the grave, you're not there yet. The sword stroke hasn't fallen to go to literature. In Prince Caspian, Rabadash is the enemy. He does evil through the whole book. And at the very end of the book, Aslan, the great king, appears to Rabadash. And when Rabadash is supposed to be destroyed, Rabadash goes on cursing while Aslan, the lion, says the judgment is very near. But there's still time left, and Rabadash curses the lion. And the lion says, it is at the door. Rabadash lifts his voice in curses and is changed into a donkey. But the point is, the lion gave him another and another and another chance until no chances left. The same thing is true in Moby Dick. If you'll read that book, you'll find Ahab has chance after chance. It is explicit. There are entire chapters at the very end of the book, beautifully written, which is why I love that story so much. At the very end of the book, when Ahab even has a chapter describing how evil his soul is, Ahab looks inside his soul and he says, I know how bad I am. Everything in me is pulling out toward evil but I won't stop. And one of the men in that book, the man named Starbuck, comes to Ahab and says, no, 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 there's still time. And Ahab thinks and says, maybe, maybe there's time, maybe. And then Ahab turns away and says, no, I've gone down this far, I've got to go further. The very next day, Ahab dies. That's here. Melville was writing a commentary on Esther. If you'll look through the history of your life, you have here tonight, the message of this chapter is, anytime you as a believer sin, humble yourself quickly or you will be humbled. The faster you humble yourself, the sooner you avoid the chapter seven. God has many ways to make our lives hard. The first time he brings the beginning of the hardness, the wise man says, you've told me, I'll change. A word of rebuke enters quickly into a wise man's heart. wise man's heart's more than a hundred stripes into the back of a fool. You can beat a fool a hundred times. He still doesn't get the message. I ask you tonight from Esther 6, which one are you? If you are lost... Then know this is your story. And if you are saved, know this: every day you go on in sin, you are paralleling to some small degree, shadowing to some sad and sorry degree Haman. I we bless God for eternal electing love. But when God says to you that gossip, that anger, that lust, that that laziness, that disinterest, that lack of kindness, that prayerlessness, when God puts his finger on a sin. Go not another day in it. Because he has many ways to bring us low. And the sinner must always be forced towards humility. You say, what is that language of forcing? Do you think men go happily to hell? Do men choose death? Very, very few. But death comes. And hell comes. It is God's way to bring all men to humility. So when you see the first taste of it, bow the knee, open your hands to God, and say, I've learned from Esther six, may God have mercy. I've never yet found the sinner that humbled himself and begged for mercy that was denied. Father, thank you for giving us this story. Grant that the glory of humility, the evil of sin, oh, show us how backward our hearts are, how crooked we are, how quick we are and fickle we are to turn back to foolishness. Grant that we would be holy and pure and godly. Show us our sin and give us this life that when we see sin, even for a moment we would turn and run from it. That like the sleep ran from the king, help us to run from sin. You will use everything in our lives from bad drivers to godly Christians to bring us to humility. Oh, cause us to kiss the rod. Cause us to kiss that rod that would bring the pain into our lives. That you might say, It is enough, and stay your hand and pour out blessing and kindness again on your people. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.